It is my privilege to introduce to you our speaker for today, uh, friends of Grace Point, friends of Josh. She is known as Pursuing Life, the Pursuing Life online on Instagram. How many know of who I'm t talking about? Yeah, I get it. Megan Crozier is here to speak with us. Please welcome her. She's going to give us um, a message today. Can you welcome her? Um, thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. I've known about Third and Lindsley as a bar and a music venue for a while, long before I knew about Grace Point. So I'm from out in the Portland, Oregon area, but it's great to meet you, Tom. Okay. Um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of context about who I am, and I'll lead into these epiphany moments that are part of the series that has been happening. I've been watching it online. It's been really great to see, and so. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I don't know about you all, but music has been a huge part of my life growing up, and it was intertwined with my faith in the 90s and 2000 CCM, anybody? <laughs> um, and so when I got to Christian college, I was listening to All the Rage Was the Passion worship CDs, if anybody remembers those. And, and we went to a Christian college, and we, I was in Chicago, and we didn't have air conditioning, so you could stand outside the dorms and hear those like worship lyrics blaring from the dorm rooms, which we were really cool. <laughs> like, um, but it was like artists like Chris Hall and um, Charlie um, Tomlin and Christy Knuckles. And there was this one song called One Thing. And it was a um, Charlie Hall song. Sorry, Charlie Hall. It was a song called One Thing. And it said, all of life comes down to just one thing, and that's to know God and make God known. And um, never mind, that was actually two things. <laughs> um, those, that was my, that was the lyrics that I lived by when I was younger. I um, had those written in my journals, in my college journals, and um, I lived by that, and it was, it was almost like it was a mantra for me. Like I breathed out, know God, and breathed in, make God known, and it was just everything to me. And when it came to knowing God, I had it down. I, I had a whole system. I was reading my Bible and praying for an hour every day. There was an empty dorm room on my floor. And I would get up early in the morning and go down there. And I, would, I had it like a whole system and a whole journal and a whole thing that I did. And that was, that was kind of how I did that. And then um, when it came to making God known, um, I, I had attended a missions conference <laughs> and um, called Urbana. And when I was there, um, it was, you know, cushioned between Christmas and New Year's and that time where they get you where you're already kind of emotional, right? And I was there and they have you sign a pledge. And they, they kind of, it's kind of like, how committed are you to this? Um, and so it was like, do you, will you go on an international trip like during college? Will you commit your life to spreading Jesus across the world. And I took that pledge and I, I decided that I was going to commit to one to three years after college to serve to become a missionary. And when I got back to school that year, I changed my major to Spanish. And so it was a huge piece of my life. And I'll get into it. It didn't pan out. <laughs> I'll get into that. But it was a huge part of my life, this know God and make God known. And that's what I was living for. And um, it was, it was almost like it led me to build relationships with a secret agenda, with, if any of you have ever felt that way, like to, okay, I'm, like with your neighbors and with your colleagues and with 
even I, I will never even forget um, driving straight from a women's retreat to where my now husband was living um, to, to break up with him because he wasn't a Christian, um, only to pray him in to Christianity. And so I, I joke that I didn't become a traditional missionary, but I think that was called missionary dating. So, um, <laughs> And that, to validate our relationship is a little more equally yoked. Um, so, but then, as so many of us watching and sitting here have gone through, things shifted for me. I'm going to walk you through some of the things that led to my own deconstruction journey and some of those epiphany moments that I've had. Um, it wasn't just one thing all at once for me. There were a, a lot of things, but I'm going to walk you through three stories of some things that made major shifts for me. And the first one happened when I realized what the evangelical church was asking of the queer community. Um, I had always seen that phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, but really didn't know the implications of it. And because I was on that mission to make God known, I had brought my one gay friend to youth group and didn't ask a lot of questions when he didn't stay and he didn't come back. Um, and it wasn't until years later that I saw an evangelical pastor preach that LGBTQ plus folks at that church and other non-affirming churches had three options. They could choose a lifetime of celibacy, they could force themselves into a heterosexual partnership, or if they, um, wanted to live into their full queer identity, they were walking away from what God had in store for them. And I remember hearing that and feeling like I could just see the trauma that those words were delivering to LGBTQ plus people. And on top of that, nowhere in the Bible did it say that any humans should be forced into celibacy. And as I dug further, I learned that even calling homosexuality a sin was an interpretive decision. And so, I've, I've, I don't know about you, but I've heard the phrase before, there's no hate like Christian love. And this felt like one of those moments, right? Um, and it just felt like loving people that evangelicals thought were sinning, it didn't look like love at all. It looked like control, often combined with the trauma of self-erasure. This hit closer home to home for me last August when I came out as bisexual. And it was something that I'd been processing with a few close friends, with my partner for a while, um, until I realized how important it was for me to live in the world as my full, authentic self. And it took almost two years of learning what it meant to be queer-affirming, to realize that I wasn't just trying to understand how to love others well, I was trying to understand how to love and affirm my own queer self. Yeah. Another epiphany moment came... Um, that it changed my perspective, and that happened through my youngest daughter, who gave me permission to share this story. She's eight years old now, but when she was a baby, I took her in to the doctor to follow up on something that they had seen when I was pregnant with her in utero. And I'll never forget that day, because I went in, and it was just a, a regular, what I thought, routine visit. I had my hair in braids, I had a baseball cap on, I had my three-month-old, and um, we did this ultrasound on her kidneys. And when they came back with the results, it was one of those moments where the doctor comes in and brings a whole team of medical students with him, and you're like, this can't be good. And they had found cysts all over her kidneys with no way to explain where they came from. And as they held her in my arms, 
The doctor said, she could live with this her whole life and be fine, or she could be on dialysis by the time she's two. And they had no answers for me that day. And during this time, I was part of a charismatic small group. You can kind of see where this is going. Um, that encouraged us to pray healing for her. And they even suggested, we were in the Pacific Northwest, and they even suggested that we take her down to this church in California that's really well known for their healing ministry. Um, we went to the children's hospital instead. And <laughs> we spent five years going to urology and nephrology and, and dermatology and radiology, all the ologies, pretty much. And we pieced together everything that was going on with her, and we finally were able to diagnose her with a condition called tuberous sclerosis. It's also known as TS. And when we received her diagnosis, we were mystified because she had a very mild presentation of um, TS. So TS often presents in combination with autism, in combinations with epilepsy, um, with developmental delays. And we had this um, narrative that was told to us that God had given us this healing moment that we had asked for. And yes, it, it was a relief to have her diagnosis and to know how we were going to care for her long term. But there was this, this thing that kept unsettling me, that kept getting mentioned, and that's what I call the at least it's not narrative. So when we were walking through that journey of finding her diagnosis, um, I would talk to people about it and they would be like, oh, well, my friend's daughter has this and at least it's not that. Or you know, my cousin's coworker, at, at least it's not what that is. And then when we got a diagnosis and we saw that there was a variety of presentations of tuberous sclerosis, we had a lot more of the, at least it could be, or at least it's not that. And I just, it, it was not, it didn't sit right with me. And I couldn't sit with a narrative of healing that gave a hierarchy to how people presented or how able-bodied they were. I knew people with autism. I knew people on dialysis. I knew people with developmental delays. And I couldn't look at them and everyone around me and categorize some people as divinely healed and other people as divinely unhealed. It just didn't make sense. And this epiphany gave me a window into disability justice and how to view people with disabilities not as people that need healing from God, but as people that are already made in the image of God. Through my experience with my youngest and books, um, don't get me started on the books. <laughs> I love to read books if you, if you know me. Um, but books like My Body is Not a Prayer Request by Dr. Amy Kenny. I've learned how ableism is baked into common evangelical interpretations of the Bible. This healing theology that we often hear in evangelicalism, treats people with disabilities as less than who they truly are. We aren't here to love people because at least they're not like someone else. What does that message say about the someone else who's made in the image of God? Not all of these epiphanies happen suddenly and change everything immediately. And so the last epiphany that I wanna share with you came gradually over time and that was me finding and honoring my own voice. When I was in that Christian college in my 20s, I thought a huge piece of my purpose in life was to find a husband and start a family. The script I was given for how that worked said to focus on getting close with God 
while I waited to be pursued by a spiritual leader. I don't know if anyone's ever gotten that messaging before. This script affected the dreams that I allowed myself to have and limited the things I allowed myself to believe I was capable of doing. I graduated from college as a single woman, did not get my MRS degree in college. <laughs> Um, but I did have a degree in Spanish and youth ministry, and I was heaven-bent on fulfilling that pledge to become a missionary that I had made. And um, I actually got almost all the way through the process of signing up to go on with an organization in Ecuador, and that door slammed abruptly in my face. Um, the final step was to do a psychological evaluation with a therapist who noticed on my survey that I, at 22 drank an occasional beer, and she spent an entire session telling me that I was an alcoholic in need of recovery, and I had so much shame the way that I was talked to when I left that session that not only did I not go to Ecuador, I didn't tell anyone why, I decided not to go. And I actually later found out that this happened to other people that I knew. So instead, I became a waitress and a nanny, and I was trying to sort out what I was going to do next. But something didn't feel right. At, at the time, I felt like I had made this commitment that I didn't follow through on, and I felt like I had turned off the path that somehow God had wanted for me. And so I had so much shame from that, just from thinking like, oh, I was supposed to do this thing, and it didn't work out. I didn't have the sense to understand why <laughs> It, was, it didn't work out, and so I just felt like something was off. And so I went back to school, I got a teaching degree, and I spent the next 15 years as a bilingual elementary school teacher. And I met my husband when I was 24, and we got married four years later. And as I mentioned earlier, he didn't grow up evangelical, but I had successfully dated him into salvation. So. <laughs> We found churches and, and small groups, and that's how we built roots and community as we moved from Illinois to the Pacific Northwest. And despite our involvement in churches, I felt for so many of these years that I had been a failure. I would failed at that pledge to become a missionary. And I also felt like I failed again because I had fallen in love and, with and married someone that didn't match up to that script of that spiritual leader that I had been given. But then this thing happened during the pandemic. I wrote a memoir, and I dug out all those journals, all my prayer journals, all my college journals, and I lined them up, and I wrote through my story. And this thing happened. I, we were quarantined, and so we were all inside, and I went even more internal. And, this, and, it, and it felt like um, in this time of uncertainty, retracing my footsteps would give me some solid footing. And it felt comforting. And when I finished writing through, I realized two things. First, that my career as an educator was anything but a failure. I was good at it. I cared for hundreds of students throughout that 15 years in three different states. I, I love students and their families and worked hard to see them grow and flourish. And the second was that I had been the spiritual leader for my family. And I had been all along. And the reason that dating and relationships were so hard for me in college, in Christian college, <clears throat> was because I had 
been looking for something in others that I hadn't given myself permission to find in myself. I remember the day I found an old college journal and I had outlined the three qualities that I was looking for in a future husband. And they were spiritual leader, integrity, and discipline. And I thought about how I connected our family with so many churches as we had moved around and how even in deconstruction, I was processing everything that I was unlearning and learning with my partner, with my family, even with my kids. And I also thought about how intentional I was about navigating the world through a lens of harm reduction, learning about power and privilege and inequity and fostering community with the shared values of inclusion, acceptance and safety. And then I also thought about how hard I had worked, not just at my job, but also in training for half marathons across the country or setting goals and achieving them. And so when I looked at that list in my journal again, spiritual leader, integrity, and discipline, I realized that those weren't qualities that I needed a partner to bring me. These were things that I wanted to foster in myself, and I was doing that. And I hadn't believed in myself fiercely enough to step into them. And it would be some time before I unpacked how terrible that therapist was. I love therapy, don't get me wrong. So, but I, I, that one therapist. And how the way that evangelicals cling, clinging to patriarchy played a role in how I viewed myself. Learning to validate my own experiences rather than apologizing for them shifted everything. I left teaching during the pandemic to become a professor at a community college. I created a bachelor's degree. Um, Community colleges are doing four-year degrees now. Check it out. It's awesome. I created a bachelor's degree in teacher education in a program that strives to reduce barriers and create more access to four-year degrees and intentionally target historically non-dominant groups to become teachers. And changing careers was one of the most difficult things that I ever had to do Um, especially in the midst of the pandemic. But setting goals and working hard and letting myself finally imagine new possibilities and see myself doing new things was incredibly rewarding and helped me to lean into my own voice and honor my needs and my passions. These and some other moments along the way all kind of contributed to me being on this journey of faith deconstruction. And when I tried to go back and look through that lens of knowing God and making God known, it just didn't add up anymore. When I dug deeper into these epiphany moments that I had had, I realized what the common denominator was. It was love. And I couldn't hold on to the beliefs that I had previously held that were unloving toward people that had been historically marginalized, not just by society, but by the church specifically. And the biggest epiphany of all came when I realized that I no longer wanted to live by knowing God and making God known, but slowly and without realizing it, I had shifted into loving God and loving others. And it was love that had made me realize how wrong and traumatizing the non-affirming stance toward the queer community and evangelical churches is. And it was love that made me realize that people with disabilities aren't incomplete people in need of healing, but people that are already made in the image of God. 
And it was love for myself that finally allowed me to give myself permission to lead and care for others in ways that I never thought possible for a woman raised in the evangelical church. So I was sorting through these epiphanies, and in sorting through them, I just want to add a couple pieces that I think often get lost when we talk about things like deconstruction and deconstructing beliefs. And the first is community. I wouldn't have had these epiphany moments without the community that I have found in the corners of the universe that holds space for others going through faith shifts. And they're not always easy to find. But places like here at Grace Point have given access either online or face-to-face to people looking for a new kind of inclusive faith community. Social media allows me to connect with people across the globe. And the podcast I co-host with my friend Cortland allows me to hear and interact with, with the stories of others that are also experiencing faith shifts and, and even their post-faith journeys. And places like my living room, where I talk through this with, I, I told you, with my family, with my partner, and also with people that we randomly connect, whether it's on the soccer sidelines or whether it's on social media, and we realize that we all live locally um, and have conversations around the dinner table. Every Tuesday morning, in fact, somebody was just telling me they tune into this um, on Tuesday mornings. Um, my podcast co-host, Cortland, and I host a live audio chat through Twitter in, in an area of Twitter called Twitter Spaces called Deconstruction Coffee Hour. So we're trying to flip the script on, hey, would you like to go to coffee? And we're like, we'll have coffee and we'll talk about whatever we want to talk about. Um, so we throw out a question and we hear from tons of folks about how they relate to different topics on their unique journeys. And we get a window on how different people are navigating their journeys and these questions. Questions like, what do we think happens when we die? Questions like, um, what do we do with holidays? How do we care for ourselves through this? What do we want to teach our children? And I see many of these topics preached here at Grace Point. I see um, in Reimagine, the book study, that's, that's an awesome book. I love it, the book study that's coming up. Um, and I'm convinced that these shifts can't happen in isolation. They happen in connection. And the other piece that I want to add is that I recognize the privilege I've held in having sat comfortably in evangelicalism for so many years without seeing the harm that it was doing to others. For so many years, I read the same authors that basically said a new version of the same thing over and over. And so now I've started picking up liberation theology and queer theology and progressive theology. And it took me way too long to realize that this isn't new theology that just came around like the 2016 election. <laughs> I, I just didn't understand the ways that others were excluded from the church because there was a version of me that fit comfortably in those seats for far too long. My friend Damon Garcia wrote a book called The God Who Riots. If you haven't heard of it, check it out. Um, and he talks about abolition, and he, in, in that book, he quotes Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass, abolitionist Frederick Douglass, differentiates between the Christianity of Christ, the Christianity that gave him the power and the strength to escape slavery, and the Christianity of the land, the Christianity that tried to justify enslaving people. And so I realized that I'm a few centuries behind in learning how Christianity has been used to oppress and marginalize people. And I think it's important to name the white supremacy that has been intertwined 
with Christianity throughout this nation's history. And, and I'm thankful for communities that have helped me understand the importance of not just deconstructing my beliefs, but decolonizing them as well. Because I think there's a temptation, too, to even colonize deconstruction. We start to learn these new ideas and these new things, and then we start to want to almost evangelize those new ideas and, and find a new certainty and find a new fundamentalism all over again. And I, I say this because I feel like I can't adequately contribute to the work of harm reduction without understanding who's experienced harm and how harm works and the harmful systems that we're part of. So these epiphanies have been significant and life-changing, but I also know that my story is not finished. Moving away from knowing God and making God known and into loving God and loving others has just changed the trajectory of how I live into that story. Instead of pushing my beliefs on someone, I realize I'm not even certain anymore about what I believe, and I'm okay with that on most days. <laughs> it's hard. And I let wonder and curiosity lead in conversations about different faith or post-faith ways of living. And I'll leave you with this. I've spent some time talking about harm reduction with people like Josh um, here at Grace Point and a few others in the work that I do in the podcast. And I realize it doesn't really complete the picture when it comes to liberation. Understanding harm and working to reduce it is one thing. But what allows people to fully thrive and flourish? So many of us have done what a friend of mine referred to as rage reading. This is what I did too, um, where you start deconstructing and you quickly try to consume as much information as possible to unlearn and relearn at lightning speed, as if to make up for the decades we spent not knowing about the harm. Reading books and unlearning is awesome, but what are we doing to support the thriving and flourishing of everyone? How do we contribute to the collective liberation of all people? I'm so excited about this series and about the other voices you'll have the opportunity to hear from over the next couple of weeks, but I just want to say how much I appreciate this opportunity as a woman, as a queer woman, to preach in this affirming space. And I hope we can all find ways to love God, whatever that looks like, whatever divinity or spirituality shows up for you, love others and love ourselves. Thank you.